When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Welcome to The Bigger Picture, where I am joined by political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Um, and I think, as I said last time, Mike, I mean, we used to have terrible trouble in the summer because nothing ever <laughs> seemed to happen. It was the silly season and we were scraping the bottom of the barrel. But no need to go down to the bottom. The barrel is bulging and overflowing <laughs> and has been for goodness knows how long. So where are we going to begin um, today? We're going to begin with something that isn't anything to do with COVID or isn't anything to do <laughs> or Brexit. So we're, go we're going you mean to mean actual back. real politics. Gosh. Well, actually what happens behind the scenes in politics and uh, something that has come up on and off uh, for as long as I certainly think I've been I've been following politics and, and certainly I think as long as you've been following it as well it, the uh, funding and access in mm. politics as well and this is uh, something that has it's nothing new to the political arena uh, for those people who um don't know the political parties are private entities they do largely raise donations from very specific sources often individuals and then there's a question about how because parties are no longer mass membership organizations with the exception of labor these days uh but the conservative party has been a party for most of the last 30 or so years that has raised most of its money from wealthy individuals uh, business people as mm. well and there was a story in the Financial Times last week that reported that those donors who have donated over a quarter of a million pounds to the Conservative Party are allowed access to the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Chancellor Rishi Sunak as well. The Conservative Party's funding structure has been under intense scrutiny for a long time now. The most recent scrutiny has fallen upon the Conservative Party's co-chair, Ben Elliott, who is also the uh, nephew of the Duchess of Cornwall, and by extent, uh, Prince, Prince Charles's nephew as well, a so-called advisory board that connects major Conservative supporters with ministers as well. And this raises a whole series of questions about to what extent the finance that is provided to political parties then buys their often very wealthy donors access and influence and it isn't just level of the conservative party but the, the labor party's funding comes majority the majority comes from trade unions and mm -hmm. the conservative party loses no time in pointing out the influence of people like lem mccluskey and other union leaders on labor policy as well but this raises the question about transparency in our politics as well mm. and if we were to look for example i think one of the biggest um uh factors that we could look at could be say in the 10 years between 2010 and 2020 the labor party raised uh, 150 million pounds uh bearing in mind that it covered four general elections as well so 2010 
2019, majority of which came from the unions. The Conservative Party raised over 110 million more than that, 267 million. Uh, 29% of that came from companies that made up those donations. And at the end, in the last three months of 2019, when the last election was held, the Tory party raised nearly £40 million compared to just £10 million for Labour. And two thirds of the donations that Labour had during the last election were under £20 to us. So there is a considerable gap here in the uh, wealth and influence of uh, backers for each party. Mm. So this is where the questions come from as well. The I won't, Before we get to the Ben Elliott situation as well, it's worth saying that the Conservative Party's advisory board, there are considerable questions about its standing in relation to the party's official policy making process. Mm. There's uh, no um, mention of it on websites. There's no mention of the leaders group either, which requires a minimum donation of $50,000 a year. Whilst David Cameron's Conservative Party did release some details about it, it's still largely considered to be a private matter. And the probably the most infamous example of Conservative Party fundraising is the so-called black and white ball, which happens in Westminster once a year, where prizes are auctioned off for funding to wealthy donors. And it often includes um, one-on-one access, say dinners with ministers or tennis matches and that sort of thing, which go for very high amounts of money. Mm. Um, just before we sort of get into the nitty gritty, I mean, from time to time, there are proposals that the parties are freed from this by by actually being funded by the public purse in relation to their success with the electorate. But presumably that has massive disadvantages as well, doesn't it? It's, it does, but we should remember that opposition parties already receive public funding, what's called hmm. short money. So any party in Parliament uh, receives funding, it's an opposition, uh, is receives public funding to allow it to match the resources that the government of the day receives through the civil service. So the funding is decided on a formula based of the number of votes received, but also the number of MPs elected. So there were certain, uh, certain obscenities, like when Douglas Carswell, um, who's briefly a UKIP MP from 2015, 2014 to 2017, was the only UKIP MP in Parliament. He had access to a huge pool of short money based off the fact he was the sole representative of 4 million voters in Parliament Mm. as well. But short money does have considerable advantages. And when the Liberal Democrats moved from uh, opposition to government in 2010 to 2015, there was a considerable hole in their finances at the time uh, because they missed the short money, it becomes so integral to running their operations. And in an ideal world, I think we would have something similarly applied to all parties standing to level the playing field. I think it's only fair and right that a party's popularity is reflected in the amount of public support mm. that they do receive. And that should include the government of the day, which does have an immense advantage in having a professionalised civil service to support yes. its actions on policy. Yes. And of course, the, you know, one can argue that the conservative government would need to consult business leaders anyway just to work out whether and it's just the same way labor would need to actually be consulting with trade union leaders i mean all those conversations are terribly important how do you separate out what is bought and what is not i mean i keep thinking of course that the while we may not like the system the way it is if you look across the atlantic the american system where it's quite clear that lobbying is an essential part for almost any company and you can see figures showing 
uh, in effect that the more companies spend on lobbying, the better they do. I mean, you know, pork barrel politics is is called that for a good reason. Can you think of any countries that actually where you, where there's a system that you just wish was imported wholesale to the UK that you would find fairer? I think we can look around the world for lessons in transparency, and I think certainly the uh, the US serves as a warning for the influence of of where big finance exists throughout lobbying out here mm. whereas actually in the uk uh say to somebody who works in public affairs the 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 money is largely confined to very highly regulated industries technically stuff like pharmaceuticals banking mm. um healthcare stuff where the, the regulations are you know are carried out by not by the government but by um, regulators at arms like bodies that mm. um have very strong legal standing as well to pivot back to the, the case of the Conservative Party, the, 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 this is centred on the, the chairman of the Conservative Party, uh, Ben Elliott, who is alleged, according to a story in The Times this week, to be using his business partner uh, through a secretive company to help manage party donors and raise access to Boris Johnson. The, he's the co-founder of a company called uh, Quintessely, which describes itself as a luxury concierge business. But it's also been revealed that he is using his position as a co-director of another company to conduct political affairs. The company, his partner is a guy called Jacob Wededic. Uh, the company's called Hod Hill. And it's basically using a um, Ben Elliott's uh, email address in the aforementioned quintessentially rather than a Conservative Party address to arrange business. Um, Mohammed Amasra, who's a telecoms millionaire and a client of Quintessly, said he's uh, been introduced to Prince Charles after paying more than £100,000 to the business in which Ms. Elliott is a shareholder and director. Now, the Transport Secretary's been out in the media rounds today insisting that the party has done nothing wrong and that Conservative Party members have no uh, undue influence on government and accepting donations is an alternative to taxing the public to fund political parties but at least if parties were taxed they would have some degree of transparency about where the funding was going and i think actually arguably it would give the public a, a broader stake in politics as well i mean we've seen I, I think arguably one of the achievements that jeremy corbyn did for labor was to certainly broaden the party's membership but even then labor is the you know it's of course it's of the biggest mass membership party in uh, western europe with half a million members the members were still largely focused in certain parts of the country whereas if political parties are taxpayer funded, you can argue that people's votes actually have some bearing on their party's fortunes as well, in the sense that it would also, I think, I'd call it state-sponsored pluralism. I think it would make things arguably much more fair in the system as well. I mean, we, we discussed themes similar to this when we talked about David Cameron recently, and it's mm. so ironic that David Cameron said, that, you know, the, the major political scandal coming down the line, I can't remember how you phrase it, was lobbying. And as you pointed out at the time and have mentioned now, I mean, what really we need all the time is utter transparency. It may not actually matter necessarily uh, how parties are funded if we actually knew exactly what was happening. And presumably the problem here is that we don't know about these relationships with Quint quintessentially. And um, uh, it, it's all this you know, under the table stuff that just raises suspicions. And and why would it even be done if there is nothing untoward going on? Then why can't we actually find out about it and have it in the open? It also makes, I think, genuine lobbying efforts 
um, incredibly difficult because the kinds of things that David Cameron was doing about and the Conservative Party were doing about are very clearly prohibited by the PRCA's um, code of conduct, mm. which the majority of the lobbying industry signs up to. And lobbying is an essential part of uh, democracy. It is an essential part in keeping things honest, but it should also be very clearly transparent and open as well. And one of the things that's very clear in the PRCA code, which full disclosure, I'm, I'm a signatory mm. to uh, and, and a member of, as, as every member of the PRCA has to be, the um, you're not allowed to employ politicians, uh, serving politicians as um, and, and, and to pay them for access. That that would seem to be a fairly common sense thing, but it's not something that's required by the government's own statutory regulation. Uh, you're not allowed to hold a parliamentary pass. So the, the lobbying has to be done on the same playing field ostensibly as um, everybody else does. And that's yes. the important difference between the difference, say, employing a former prime minister or um, Conservative Party donors paying X amount of money to have access to the prime minister. Now, if, if your business, there is nothing, no one would argue that, you know, if you have an influential figure in society that, you know, that the government shouldn't engage with them. You know, someone like business like Mike Ashley, for example, has many thousands of jobs in this country as mm. well. But the, the, the problem then becomes is what happens behind these things in closed doors. And genuinely, the, the government has nothing to fear, I think, by being more transparent and by, the, the, for example, the PRCA has called for the lobbying system to be to be tightened up. It must be one of the few sectors of the mm. economy where actually we're calling for uh, better regulation of the industry because ultimately it will improve access for everyone. And of course, in, in theory, political parties should be the basic lobbying vehicles for the public as well. And if the public, uh, no, if, 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 they're, if they're publicly funded, it removes the questions about, say, undue influence, whether it's businesses or trade unions. Uh, it means that our society, post mass membership, the political parties can focus on representing the communities they want to represent, but knowing that these concerns are tied to actual policy interests, political interests, not to money. Just one out of interest, not that we ever really in this country change our political parties very, very often, but you know, we keep talking about being possible third parties. And over the last few years, we've had several instances where we sort of expected parties might suddenly become very dominant. Does the system you're proposing actually hinder the setting up of new parties? I don't think so. If it's connected to electoral outcomes, like the short money system is as well. And, and arguably, I mean, we, we, there are systems around the world where there are, say, Germany, which has strict limits on the political parties that can be elected to its mm. parliament. Um, the biggest barrier to setting up any new political party is the electoral system in this country as well. That is... Yes. That the voting system means that minority party interest in any area can, you know, you can have two parties that get 60% of the vote between them and another party that's 40% and that party's elected. So, I mean, that goes back to electoral reform. Yeah. Well, clear, yes, clearly we don't have time to discuss electoral reform or even or even the Boundary um, Commission uh, suggestions at the moment. Uh, we could spend the entire programme doing that. So maybe that's a good moment for just a pause breath and change topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Um, so 
uh, Mike, uh, we're going to move on now and discuss some of the things that have to do with uh, with COVID, which you managed to avoid until now. It's quite a welcome relief, I must say, after the past year and a bit. Um, so we're going to talk, first of all, about um, uh, the necessity of vaccines to do with travel. Yes. Changes, um, you know, um, just the day we're according to the the traffic light system. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I mean, I adore going abroad in the summer but i just cannot face the hassle involved but um tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of others have decided it is worth it it does seem to me though that the system that has been put in place um is a great deal easier for those people with a great deal of money rather than those who are scrimping and saving to go abroad i mean the cost of pcr tests i think my partner and i were lucky enough to be able to get away earlier in the year and we found that the cost of doing the test added roughly per person 200 pounds over 200 pounds wow. to a holiday which you know obviously we were lucky to be able to afford but and this this is part of a trend that has worried me for a while now between the advancement of a, a justifiable agenda to tackle climate change but also a move um, as, as countries put up additional barriers, whether it's related to visa requirements or to, um, uh, say, uh, vaccine screening as well to tackle issues like a pandemic that will make the cheap foreign holiday uh, something of the past. And I don't want to see a, a world where we return to foreign travel being the preserve of just the, 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 the richer parts of society again. And arguably the, you know, the chair of the Transport Select Committee has today, Hugh Merriman MP, has come out and said that the, the figures from NHS Test and Trace reflect actually the lateral flow tests that are freely available are actually adequate as opposed to paying anywhere between 150 to 200 pounds for a PCR test mm. for a private company. In, in this situation, and even then, the, the, the government said today that the cost of isolating, quarantine during a hotel is going to go up from the 12th of August. Uh, it's going to go up to uh, two and a half, uh, nearly £2,300 for an adult and then £1,500 for a second adult. And, and yet we've read reports of people getting salmonella. We've read reports of places that have um, enclosed air conditioning systems that might actually spread COVID rather than having windows you can actually open to get fresh air. I've had seen reports in one place of, of people um, having to move rooms because of rats. I mean, yeah. two and a half thousand pounds on top of uh, a foreign holiday to stay in a hotel that is absolutely appalling doesn't seem to me like much of a, a worthwhile pursuit. Yes. So this this basically stems from remarks from, again, Grant Sharp. So they've been out on the media around that Britons will need to be fully vaccinated against COVID to, quote, forevermore in order to travel between countries. Uh, this is a prediction, not an announcement. Uh, now, partly of this, you could say that it's Mr. Sharp's trying to encourage an uptake of the, the virus, um, not the virus, the vaccine among mm. the youngest people. Uh, there's a good chunk of the under 29s that haven't been vaccinated yet, about one in three. And some of them are, are questioning whether they need a vaccine at all, given that the majority of the older population has been uh, vaccinated. To, to be clear, I fully support the vaccine. I think you should get vaccinated. I think even if you don't believe you're at risk, it's a fundamentally selfish thing not to be vaccinated because that our society remaining open uh, according depends on us minimizing the spread of the virus, which we know the vaccine any any vaccine candidate uh, does reduce transmission from person to person as well. And I think one of the things the government's clearly driving at, and this is the right aim, is that we want to have society reopened and sustainably kept open as well. Oh. But 
we also can't lose sight of the fact too that the foreign travel is going to become in the next few years increasingly more difficult and i think we know whether it's to do with brexit traveling to europe and we don't want so many different barriers to go up that we have lost the ability to travel freely abroad and tra travel or, or even indeed well. go around about our ordinary life here i mean i don't know about you but i felt that when i um went for my uh covid vaccine that one of the reasons i was doing it is because it would lead to more normal life afterwards yes well, now we even fun. get some of the more uh, gloomy um uh, uh scientists such as uh, neil ferguson saying well the pandemic will be over by the end of september we'll have herd immunity then a lot of scientists now saying it's become endemic rather than the pandemic and yet you know last year i could actually travel to france very easily i had to fill out one form i had to wear a mask on the plane and the airport other than that it was absolutely no different than any other year now that the uh, prevalence of covid is very much lower than it was last year and yet it's almost impossible for me to travel yes. i don't I, I just i suspect that like many people one of the things that really upset me is it makes absolutely no sense it does not appear to be joined up at all I mean, why after a year and a bit are we still getting policy that seems to be made up on the hoof by people who have no idea how real people live? Because the the government is afraid, I think, of what it calls the vaccine escape, which means the emergence of a variant of mm -hmm. COVID that the current vaccines are less effective against. But that is unfortunately inevitable, I would say, because of the simple fact that viruses mutate therefore there's a reason we vaccinate against flu every year there's a reason that you get a cold every year because viruses are very good at adapting and evolving i learned this in you know in secondary school biology this is you know there are, there has to be a tolerable level of risk to be accepted to now none of us are saying that you shouldn't have a vaccine to be out in wider society i think actually that the, the wider point is connected to freedom when the vaccines are so readily available and the we have the infrastructure in place to, to go and get a vaccine for free is unlike um other countries in the world I, I i think that if you're not getting the vaccine that's daft but equally the government cannot if we consider the fact that yes there are 130,000 people who've died from covid but the daily death rate is one tenth of it was at the second peak a thousand people yeah. a day were dying in january it's now 119. Yes. it's now something like the 24th or 25th cause of death in this country yes. i mean it's, it's very low and if we started that level nobody would have actually bothered about it at all and at what point have we moved from a pandemic to an epidemic here what yes covid yes. is still prevalent in society yes there are cases, but people aren't dying at a bit at the same level as well and we're still vaccinated 172,000 people the day before we recorded this 70 percent of the population have had their first dose 60 percent have had a second dose that does cover the most vulnerable groups yes we want to get to 100 percent but the vaccines are already there available and they are broadly speaking effective at reducing serious illness and death to almost a negligible level yeah well uh yes we seem to be in agreement like that as i suspect many people around the country are it doesn't really make much sense and of course what we've got to fear is that as the weather gets colder again and as flu which apparently was almost nowhere last year um, rears its head that um the nhs will get swamped because of flu cases could we tend not to think of flu as being a killer but of course it it is it's just something we're so used to mm. but given there that i've mentioned the nhs you do want i think to talk about that i mean clearly uh, one of the problems at the beginning of the pandemic was making sure the nhs could cope with the extra um workload mm. um but you want to talk about the health rankings internationally don't you 
Yes. So there is a report produced by a US-based think tank that is known as the Commonwealth Fund. And every few years or so, they produce an analysis of the best health systems across 11 of the richest countries in the world. Now, for the last two times they've done this in 2014 and 2017, the NHS was, was ranked as number one. It's now fallen to fourth with Norway, the Netherlands and Australia now judged to be providing better care. The um, assessment uh, by the Washington-based think tank was that this uh, slippage in rankings has come about from a delays in access facing care, but also a lack of investment in services and uh, wider poverty as well. Now, we there is a the, the popularity of the NHS is not in doubt in this country. It's a very beloved institution. But there's also a question now of certainly in the last year or so about how it is um, positioned to care for the rapidly evolving needs of the population. Now, we have seen, I think, the best of the health service with the mm. flexibility of the vaccine rollout. We have, for example, in the village where, where I live, we have a, a GP surgery that serves as a pharmacy community hub as well. It's an incredible place to go because you can get medication on the doorstep. And that sort of community pharmacy structure is very important. When we finish recording, please tell me where you live. I'm going to move. It. It's not my experience in London. <laughs> I, I've had, I, I, I've been lucky actually. I, I've had a lot of NHS care the last five years. I've had very good NHS care, but yeah. that, that is partly to do with a very exceptional woman called Caroline in North Middlesex Hospitals. So I'll just give her a mention. But also, we must acknowledge that there are longer term trends at work here. So the waiting list for routine care has reached um, levels not seen since the early 2000s. And at the moment, there's a certain sense of the AHS trying to keep managing it and yes the government legislated for a multi-year funding settlement last year but we still don't know for example say it had a lot of work around capital infrastructure investment in the nhs we need a multi-year funding settlement um, for that we need clarification and there is a 10 billion pound maintenance backlog too and of course the key aims of the nhs long-term plan are to move care from in hospitals into more primary and community care settings as well but the government's still placing emphasis on investment in acute settings for example the 40 new hospitals program and there's also other component things like mental health as well and a lot of health infrastructure for example is in older properties so the, the, the gp surgery i referenced here is in an old house it does have a modern bit attached to it but you think about how many GP surgeries you you go to that are in old terraced houses, for example, rather than more modern fit for purpose. Yes, clinics. that's mine. Yes, there is a considerable um, uh, issue to address here. And if we are truly proud of the NHS, and I think you know having something that where we a system where we can deliver healthcare free at the point of use is is a considerable badge of pride for many mm. people in the UK then we have to ensure it comes to the appropriate level of investment. As, as with social care, though, this raises the very difficult conversation which policymakers have been ducking for 20 years. How do you fund it properly? And that means one thing, taxes will probably have to go up. But if we're so proud of the AHS, most people, I, I would argue, would probably be happy to yes. pay that. Yes, I mean, I worry because I don't think it's incredibly well managed. You talk about flexibility. And, and I heart out feeling it's a very top heavy organization that doesn't give enough flexibility to people to be able to cope with their local needs. That yes. worries me massively. And so, you know, pouring money into the NHS in itself is not an answer because a lot of that money gets 
gets wasted. Well, we have, the, we, have, we have the structural reforms going through with the integrated care systems, which I, I think are very smart. These, but they're unpicking the landscape <clears> reforms <throat> as well. I mean, we could talk about healthcare reform. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, a bit like electoral reform, anything with the word reform, <laughs> we could spend hours talking. Well, let's just very briefly discuss one other story, which is sort of probably um, a good news um, story. We heard a lot of musicians complaining about the fact that they simply mm. couldn't, I mean, ignoring the pandemic, that they just were unable to tour um, Europe after Brexit. But there is light on the horizon, isn't there? There is. Uh, so the Department for Culture, Media and Sport has announced today that it has managed to uh, reach an agreement with 19 European countries to allow visa-free travel for musicians across um, certain areas of Europe, which was something that was considered to be a one of the many things that was missing from mm. the um, the government's uh, post-Brexit deal, the TCA that was unveiled at the start of last year, it hasn't really had prominence that other issues have had, mainly because uh, touring hasn't been uh, on the agenda because of lockdown, unsurprisingly. However, it's undoubtedly welcome news, but underlines the fact that alongside issues like the Northern Ireland Protocol, the government's Brexit settlement was far from perfect. And unfortunately, one of those things that is going to, I think, pose a considerable problem going on along is the fact that this Brexit deal left so many details up in the air. But for musicians and for the UK's um, considerable soft power that we enjoy through our creative sectors, not just musicians, but film, mm. other areas as well, the arts, it can only be good news. And it's nice to end the week on something. True, the, true. except I was reading about this. I came across a word I'd never heard of before, cabotage, which just sounds like it's related to sabotage, but doesn't appear to be, which is the restrictions on tour vehicles who are driving the kit for the musicians. I mean, it's fine if you're a string quartet, you can probably take your instruments with you, but most bands clearly um, cannot do that. I mean, I know having once been a roadie for a, a, a very uh, uncool group many years ago, um, but apparently that's yet to be resolved. So although it looks great and we've got the headline saying it's fantastic, I'm not sure the small print yet has necessarily been finalised. But as you say, let us hope so. It sounds good, but I'm afraid there have just been so many um, headlines that sound good until you actually discover days later it doesn't mean what it says on the tin. Uh, Mike, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Mike Indian, uh, political commentator, of course, author of the Groucho Tendency blog, and Mike will be back in conversation with me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.